Christmas is special, particularly for children. And it's special for many reasons. One of the reasons is the build-up, the anticipation of Christmas Day. I think the anticipation begins somewhere around Thanksgiving. And then it really reaches a almost fever pitch when school lets out uh, for Christmas break, which I think is this Friday. Then there is the almost unbearable excitement knowing that the big day is drawing ever closer. And finally, it's Christmas Eve. And many kids are like my brother was when he was a kid. He couldn't sleep on Christmas Eve. And lots of kids are still that same way. They can't sleep and in anticipation of what will happen the next morning. And ante- anticipation is a good thing. Um, it keeps us moving forward. And it can be a tremendous motivator in our lives. Well, let's think about the unbelieving world for just a moment. What do they have to look forward to? The next vacation? The next holiday? That's about it. They certainly don't look forward to the end of their lives because they're fearful and uncertain of what will happen. But we as Christians have something far more exciting to anticipate than a vacation or the next holiday coming up. And this event that we live in anticipation of is far greater than any Christmas, and it should create a far greater sense of excitement and anticipation for each one of us who name the name of Christ. So what are you referring to? What I'm referring to is the second coming of Christ. We could say the second advent, if you will. Now, it's not surprising that in a book that chronicles the end times that we find two very clear and two very explicit references to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We read the first one here in our text this morning in verse 7. And if we fast forward to the very end of the book, we find our Lord himself saying in Revelation 22 Verse 20, surely, surely, I am coming soon, to which John responds, amen, come Lord Jesus. But news of the second coming isn't limited just to a couple of verses in the book of Revelation. For instance, Jesus spoke of his second coming in each one of the Gospels. For instance, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 30, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Then Jesus said in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, He said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Now notice how Jesus begins his words to his disciples in John 14. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Now we may, may be asking, well, is that supposed to be words of comfort? It seems like it's more of an instruction that was given to the disciples. Well, as we continue to read, we see that what? They are tremendous words of comfort. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. And then he gives us the reason why we should not be troubled. And what are the reasons that he gives? He says, listen, yes, I'm going away. But the reason I'm going away is to prepare a place for you. And you need to know this, that I will come again. So what is the comfort that we gather from that? He's not forgotten us. He's not abandoned us. He's thinking about us. He's preparing a place for us. Those are tremendous words of comfort. The, the, the comfort is found in the reality, in the certainty that he's preparing a place for us, that he is coming again, and that when he returns, we will be with him for the rest of eternity. Those are words of what? Tremendous comfort. And the Lord's words there in the Gospel of John convey the same message that John writes in the book of Revelation. But the second coming of Christ is not limited to a few verses in the book of Revelation, nor is it limited to the Lord's references in the Gospels. The Apostle Paul also addressed the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he writes to the church at Thessalonica who were a little concerned. They were a little worried. They had been exposed to some bad teaching, and it was robbing them of the comfort that the second coming was supposed to be supplying them. So he writes to them in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Now notice this. Their, their consternation, if you will, their lack of comfort came from bad knowledge. So Paul says, listen. I got a pastor's heart. I don't want you to be uninformed about this situation. I do not want you to be informed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not uh, grieve as others do who have no hope. Isn't it wonderful that we as Christians have hope? I mean, what's Paul referring to? He's, he's addressing this in the context of those who had lost family and friends. They had lost loved ones to death. If you've ever been to, if you've ever been to, the funeral of an unbeliever and, and, and take note of the way that other unbelievers respond to that death, it is a marked difference than when you go to the, the funeral of a Christian. I don't mean this. I don't mean this in any way, shape, or form to be irreverent. But when my father passed away and we had his funeral, yes, I was saddened by that. And yes, I had grief by that. But there was an overwhelming sense of joy in me knowing that, that he was with Christ. That's where we have our hope. That's where our hope comes from. That's where our comfort comes from. That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him. Don't you love that? God will bring with him. Forgive my hopefully sanctified imagination for a moment. But if I'm still alive... You know who I'm going to see coming with him? My dad. Sherry's dad. 
your loved one who was in Christ and passed away. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be tremendous? Dad comes back with Christ. What a tremendous thought. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we always be with the Lord. And Paul says, therefore, encourage, comfort one another with these words. Listen, the scriptures do never, ever discount the comforting power of the scriptures applied by the Holy Spirit of the Holy Spirit. So what have we learned already? Well, we learned two things, that the Lord's return, the second coming of the Lord, is both a tremendous source of comfort as well as a tremendous source of encouragement. And it's even referenced in the Old Testament. For instance, the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, he wrote in chapter 12, verse 10. Of course, he's speaking on behalf of God. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Do you see the second coming in that verse? So no, where's it at? It says, well, Zechariah says, so that when they look on me, on him they have pierced. Well, how will they be able to look on him when he returns for the second time? So what do, we, what do we see here? We see that the second coming of Christ is not some obscure truth, but rather that it's a prominent truth that is displayed throughout the Scriptures. So as believers, we should live each day in anticipation of the second coming of Christ. We should be praying like John, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come today. Come before we're finished with this service. We desire to be in your presence. We desire for to escape the madness of this world. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. So properly understood, the second coming is not just something to be debated. I wonder sometimes if, 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 if the Lord is not grieved when we take these, these precious biblical truths that are meant to give us comfort and encouragement and we turn them into items for purely debate. And we rob ourselves of the comfort. We rob ourselves of the encouragement. We rob ourselves of the joy that these doctrines were intended to convey to us. Properly understood, the Lord's second coming brings us comfort in a very uncomfortable world, and it brings us peace in a world that is crying out for peace. So what does John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, teach us here? Well, John teaches us three things. Let me give them to you. Number one, 
John teaches us of the certainty of the second coming. The certainty of the second coming. Look at verse uh, chapter 1, verse 7 with me again. Behold, he is coming. Stop right there. Behold, he is coming. John begins verse 7 with a word that we probably seldom have ever used. When's the last time you and I used the word behold? Probably not recently. So it's good that John uses a word that we don't normally use. You know why? Because it does exactly what he wanted it to do. The word behold is an attention-getting word. So he wants to arrest our attention amidst the clamor of life, the struggles of life, all the thoughts that intrude upon our mind and want to crowd out the truth of the Scriptures. So John says, behold, listen up. I've got some incredibly good news to tell you. I've got some words of encouragement for you. I have great words of comfort for you. What is it, John? What is it, John? What is it, John? He is coming. Now, that doesn't really resonate with us because we are not the original recipients of the book. The original recipients of the book were what? These were the seven the seven churches in Asia Minor, and they were undergoing or about to undergo tremendous persecution. Lives would be lost. They would be tested for their faith. There was trouble all around. They were losing their jobs. They couldn't provide for their family. And so he gives to them these incredible words of certainty, of comfort and encouragement. Behold, he is coming. So they were assured that their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, had not abandoned them, had not forgotten about them, that he was well aware of what they were going through. Behold, he is coming. He wants us to hear these words of certainty. The certainty was in the fact that the one who walked among the seven churches was going to return and he would end the suffering and the persecution of his people. The Christian's comfort comes from the certainty and the security of the promises of God. Do you see that? I grew up in Cincinnati. Home of Skyline Chili, amen. And uh, Xavier Basketball was on the radio. And they had an announcer that every time one of the Xavier Basketball players would make a shot, he said, you can write it down and circle it. You can write it down and circle it. If God said it, it's going to happen. We would say today, you can take it to the bank. Or as some old boy says, that dog will hunt. Right? It's sure. It's certain. If God has said it, it will come to pass. In fact, if we pay attention to the entire opening paragraph here, uh, first two paragraphs here, verses 1 through 8, we see that the entire thing is riddled with certainty, certainty. Look at verse 1. 
the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must take place. You know what that word must there means? It's necessary. It's inevitable. It is a divine necessity that these take these things take place. And what did we learn last week? Why do these things take place? Because of the eternal decrees of God. These things must take place. It's necessary that these things take place. It's inevitable that these things take place. Jesus himself gives us an illustration of this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Uh, Matthew records, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Again, why was it necessary? Why was it inevitable? Because of the eternal decrees of God. God has said it. You can write it down and circle it. You can take it to the bank. It will come to pass. This is all a part of God's eternal plans and purposes. No surprises here. God is not playing catch up in any way, shape, or form. But look at verse 3. In verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, part of the blessing of the comfort comes from the knowledge, again, that Jesus hadn't, hasn't abandoned us. He reminds us that the time is near. The time is drawing closer every day and it grows closer with each and every passing day time is near so do you think it would happen in our lifetime i have no idea but i believe him when he says the time is near in his perfect timing he will return he will return so john writing under the inspiration of the holy spirit assures not only his original readers but us as well that the things, the events that they're about to read about are going to take place. They must happen. So when they get to verse 7, what do they read? That Jesus Christ is coming with clouds. And they have the reality of that certainty. And from that certainty comes security and comfort. Number two, we see the comprehensiveness of his coming we have the certainty of his coming now we see the comprehensiveness of his coming and again that's in verse 7 behold he is coming with the clouds and every eye would you make note of that every eye will see him even those who pierced him and all make note of that all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him even so amen when the second coming of christ occurs it will not be a secret to anyone it'll be a surprise for many but it's not going to be a secret john says that every eye will see him john says that all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him and let's for just a moment contrast the the first coming the the, the first advent of the lord with the second coming of the lord you know when jesus came and was born that event was a relatively obscure event. Yeah, there, there were certainly, it was predicted in the scriptures. And anybody who cared to read the scriptures, who 
had access to the scriptures would know that, yeah, the Messiah is coming. But it was a relatively obscure coming. I mean, think about it. Gabriel shows up one day to a young virgin named Mary. She's probably between 12 and 14 years old. And tells her that she is going to have a child. He shall be called Great. His name is Jesus. And Mary, who's Mary? She was an obscure young girl from an obscure little town called Nazareth. Nathaniel said of Nazareth, Does that, can anything good come out of that place? That's how little was thought of it. But here's this obscure little girl in an obscure little town. But yes, she gives birth to Christ. Now, I don't want to say that the, the first coming of Christ wasn't spectacular because it was. Listen to how Paul records it for us in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That is spectacular. God takes on human flesh. He comes to earth as a helpless babe. That's spectacular. Any way you want to slice it, that's spectacular. You can't downplay that. But at the same time, even though it was a spectacular event, it was also an obscure event. I mean, after all, Mary and Joseph, they couldn't even find a room to stay in. Jesus was born in a stable, in a manger. He's laid in a manger. Very few eyes saw his first coming when he came. But it's completely different when he returns for the second time. Because John says that every eye will see him. So what does that mean? Does that mean that every person who's ever been born, who's walked upon the face of the earth, will see him? No, I don't believe that. What it, that's what it means. I do believe what it means is that every person, believer and unbeliever alike, who is alive at the time of the Lord's second coming, they will see him. They will see him. And for some, it will be incredibly good news. And for others, it'll be one of the worst days of their life. Why? Because they will recognize that it is he whom they have pierced. Simply meaning that they are guilty of their sin and they're about to be judged for it. Some will rejoice, some will wail. Think of that word wail. Jeff told me one time that as a paramedic, some of the worst calls that he ever went on was the death of a child, and particularly he remembered one where a 12-year-old boy had taken his own life and the, the, the sounds coming from that family, wailing, mourning. 
unquenchable grief. That's the picture here. John doesn't say, well, they'll shed a few tears. Nor will they shake their fist up at the sky in rebellion. They will wail. They will mourn. They know that they are doomed. They know that they are damned forever. So they will, they will wail. So we see the certainty of his coming, the comprehensiveness of his coming, and then thirdly, the consequences of his coming. Just as every eye will see Jesus when he returns for the second time, so too will everyone be impacted when he comes again. For some, there will be great remorse. For others, there will be a glorious realization. The first group will be those who pierced his side, meaning the unbeliever. Every unbeliever will see Jesus and they will wail. They will be overcome with the reality of the consequences of having rejected Christ. To put it very mildly, they will be impacted in a devastating way when he returns for the second time. And beloved, those words should serve as a warning for anyone here today who has rejected God's offer of grace and forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you continue to reject Christ one day, you know what you will find yourself doing? Wailing, mourning, filled with remorse and regret, having been exposed to the gospel, but yet you chose to ignore it and to reject it. The second group who will be impacted by the Lord's second coming are those who have embraced by faith the Lord's offer of salvation. Those who have recognized him as Lord and Savior. They will finally realize the fulfillment of all the promises that God has made to his children. The promises that many Christians live their entire lives in anticipation of receiving them. Well, those who are alive at the, when the time of Christ's second return, they will finally realize the fulfillment of all of these promises. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, now here's where we pick it up, to him who loves us and freed us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So what we have here in the last part of verse 5, and then on culminating in verse 6, is John describing what the Lord has done for us. Please know, this whole passage here is, has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done for us. And that's the message that John keeps driving home here. And if you'll notice in, in these verses, there is a very clear progression progression that John wants us to take note of. Say, what's the progression? First is that he has loved us, and he continues to love us. We talked about this last week. Part of the eternal decrees of God was setting his love on his children. And once he sets his love on them, they can never escape that love. They can never remove themselves from that love. They can't sin enough. To make him stop loving them. Again, that is a tremendous comfort, isn't it? Particularly in a world that we live in where vows, marriage vows are so easily broken. 
young man and young woman, they stand before God and the pastor and the congregation, and they profess to confess that they will love one another until death do they part. But yet, just a few years down the road, far too many break that covenant and say, I don't love you anymore. And lives are devastated. But the love of Christ is not like that. Once he sets his love on you, he will love you forevermore. He loves us. Number two, he's freed us. Was he freed us from our biggest problem? He has freed us from our sins. And just as he will love us forevermore, forevermore, we are free from the bondage of sin. Do we understand that before we came to Christ, we were slaves of sin? And it had a death grip on us. It had, as it were, its hands wrapped around our neck and was slowly squeezing the life out of us, and there was nothing that we could do to stop its progression. But he loved us. And because he loved us, he took action for us. And what is part of that action? He's freed us from our sins. He loves us eternally. We are free eternally from the bondage of sin. And the third step in the progression is he has made us what? A kingdom and priest to our God. He elevates our status. He frees us not to do our own thing, not to go our own way. No, he frees us and he elevates us and he gives us this exalted position once we were slaves of sin, once we were under the control of the God of this world, we were part of the kingdom of darkness, but now we've been taken away from that, been taken out of that. We've been freed from all of that, and now we're part of the kingdom of light, and we have real meaning. We have real purpose to our lives. We are priests to our God. We serve our God. Isn't that incredible? Do you see yourself that way? He loved us. He freed us. And he's made us. He's elevated us. He's given us real meaning, real purpose to our lives. And what should be our response to all of this? What should be our response to what Jesus has done for us? Look again at the end of verse 6. John gets it. John gets it. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know what he's saying there? Amen. That's true. This should be our response. We should worship him. We should praise him. We've been freed from the constraints that kept us from praising him properly, properly acknowledging who he is and what he's done for us. Now he's loved us. He's freed us. He's made us. Therefore, we should praise him. Give him all the glory. Give him all the praise. 
Picture yourself in Revelation chapter 5. You're going to be a numbered among that great throng that is there that cries out, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive blessing and honor and glory. Is he worthy? He is. He is. And that's what John is wanting us to see here. And just as the wise men who appeared at the first coming of the Lord Jesus humbled themselves and bowed before him and worshiped him, so too should we. That should be our response. That's the only appropriate response. So where do we go from here? Number one, I believe we should make a concerted effort to live with a sense of anticipation of his second coming. Every day, we should pray, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Now, some people think I'm more, morbid. I'm really not morbid. I think I'm a realist. I, I have a personal goal of preaching until I'm 80. I, I didn't say pastoring, but preaching until I'm 80. And this year, I'll be 63. So that's only 17 years. Now, to someone who's in their 20s or younger than that, 17 years, oh, my word, that's, that's like an eternity. No, nah, baby, no. Nah. It's not. My oldest child's been married 10 years now. Tack on seven. I'll be boot scooting off this earth if God allows me to make it that far. See, if we live in anticipation of a second coming, it will reorient our priorities. The things that we think are so important will not be all that important to us anymore. It will change the way that we view how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we view our lives, knowing that he is coming back one day. But, further, but going on from that, you know, we derive great comfort and encouragement from the reality that he will return. He's coming back for his own someday. Which means, again, we can find comfort in this world. We can have encouragement in this world. We can find peace in this world that knows nothing of peace. Why? Because we are living in anticipation of what is to come. Now, you may not openly confess this. I wouldn't blame you. But has there been a Christmas in your life that you've been disappointed? You're not going to be disappointed with what's ahead of you. If you're in Christ. There's a song that my home church sang. I, I don't know how old it is. I should have looked it up, I guess, but I was too lazy to. But it has a great message. And it goes something like this. I think I, I, think I can remember the words. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face. 
the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me to the promised land, what a day, glorious day that will be. That's what we have to look forward to. No disappointment. No disappointment. When Christ returns, we will finally, fully realize all of the promises God has made to his children. Because Jesus is coming again, we have something far greater to celebrate and anticipate than Christmas. And I leave you with these words. Behold, he is coming.